From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in LA. I'm Aaron Tracy. Today, a conversation with mega A-list screenwriter, Ed Solomon. We have Ed in person here at the Yale Broadcast Center, which I'm incredibly excited about. I think he's sitting in a coffee shop on campus somewhere, doing some writing, getting ready to join us. He also agreed to let me interview him on stage later at a larger event. And then he's gonna come get pizza with my students before we train back to New York together. So insanely generous of him. Seems like he's that kind of guy. Wants to help, wants to give. If you saw the HBO documentary about Gary Shanlin, it reminds me of Gary's philosophy. You know, be of service to people. Which makes sense because Ed is in that documentary. He was one of Gary's protégés. Anyway, I'm really glad Ed just moved from LA to New York because I want to be friends with him. Ed is a monster screenwriter. As we all know, it's incredibly rare to write a movie that gets made. That's enormous right there. Writing a movie that's popular enough that it gets a sequel or becomes a franchise? Insanely rare. Ed has done that four times. Four of his movies have spawned franchises and counting. Ed's also worked on two of the most interesting TV series that I can think of. He started his career writing on It's Gary Shanling Show after Gary found him as a senior at UCLA and thought he was funny. That show, which we'll talk about, revolutionized TV. It broke the fourth wall, it acknowledged the audience, it acknowledged itself as a TV show. It's the precursor to all our favorite ironic shows of the last decade, like The Office and 30 Rock and Arrested Development. Then, this year, Ed wrote every episode of Mosaic for Steven Soderbergh, which aired on HBO, but also as a choose-your-own-adventure sort of app. That's the first time that sort of app has been tried with scripted TV. One of the things that's so remarkable about Ed is that he's managed to bring his funny, ironic voice to big-budget Hollywood blockbusters. Most studio movies don't have a voice. They're written by committee. They follow proven formulas and simply serve as vehicles for movie stars. Studios spend hundreds of millions of dollars on them, and they don't want to take any chances. But Ed's studio movies are different. Men in Black, which he wrote, is genuinely smart and interesting with a central relationship that feels both completely real and down-to-earth and also fantastical and imbued with the outlandish sci-fi at the center of the movie. Not an easy task. The same can be said for Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, also written by Ed, which is a deep, touching friendship at the heart of the movie, which is otherwise over the top and completely bananas. One of these movies has two surfer dudes hopping through time in a phone booth, picking up historical figures like Socrates and Freud on the way. The other is about a secret government task force supervising aliens who live here on Earth. But you don't walk away from either feeling like you just saw a kid's movie or a cartoon. You walk away having had an experience with recognizable, relatable characters. Characters who are caught up in a world of craziness. You know, like life. I'm going to talk to Ed about all this and a lot more. Our producer Ryan is giving me the signal here that Ed has just walked in. So here he is. Ed Solomon. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft, 
for spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. Okay, so, hi, Ed. Hey, Aaron. It How are you doing? It is very exciting to have you here in the studio in New Haven. Um, this is your first time at Yale? First time. Uh, I guess when else would you have been here? Did you do a whole college tour when you were looking at schools? When I was looking at colleges, we... Uh, we, when I say we, I say my parents and I spoke about it zero times <laughs> other than um, for my parents to say, college, huh, college, <laughs> yeah. I was the first one to go to college, so no one went to college. Really? So uh, I went and looked at uh, one school, which I had already applied to. I applied to two schools, the two I'd heard of that were near me, Stanford, which I didn't get into, and UCLA which I thankfully did get into because otherwise I wouldn't have uh, gone to college at all. I went and looked at it after I'd applied and was, oh, okay, this is what UCLA looks like. Um, But other than that, uh, no thought was put into it. And did you do the film program there? I didn't get in. Uh, I was not allowed into any film classes (laughs) because I wasn't a film major. Wow. And then I uh, applied to go to grad school, to the film school, but got a job my senior year on a TV show. So I said to the producer, um, gosh, I don't know. I was going to go to grad school. And he just looks at me and goes, you're going to go to grad school? Why? So that you can graduate and get this job? Right. <laughs> like, why would you go to grad school? And I was, and then he goes, this is grad school. And he was, of course, totally right about that. What was the job? Laverne and Shirley. Wow. And back then, Laverne and Shirley, I mean, there were so many, f- there were so many fewer channels. I mean, the, the share that must have been, what, 40 million people watching a week or something. The first episode that I had written that was on, the head writer came in and said, I just want you to know that more people are going to see your episode of Laverne and Shirley than have ever seen all of Shakespeare performed live. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And I, yeah, um, it's kind of sad, but yeah. And it's funny because I was talking to a friend of mine from high school who was also at UCLA at the time. And six weeks before I got that job, we were talking about what we would and wouldn't do. And uh, I was like, I would never write for a show like Laverne and Shirley. And then I get this offer. I'm like, ah. <laughs> And you got it while you're literally still in school? Yeah. Well, I was writing jokes for comedians. I was uh, Paying for – actually, by by senior year, I was paying for all of school by with doing stand-up and writing jokes. Wow. And then uh, wrote some plays at UCLA, and those uh, plays were performed. One of the And they com- still wouldn't let you take any film classes? No. I, no. That's amazing. I know. It's, it's – you know, it's just because I wasn't a major. And, you know, the film major – the screenwriting classes were reserved for the film majors. I was able to take some playwriting classes. So once I started that, I was in playwriting. I did that every – quarter we did we were on the three the trimester system so every quarter three quarters and then uh, every quarter i took a playwriting class um had one of the plays that i wrote was performed at a just a student venue on campus um one of the comedians i wrote for was gary shandling gary had a friend named mark sotkin and mark was going to be producing laverne and shirley through gary i invited mark to come see the play Uh, mark hired me and i went from being like kind of sporadically amateurishly funny to having to be in a room of incredibly incredibly funny people with a lot of pressure and how did they treat you as a 21 year old terribly i bet yeah it was not good and it, part of it was i i don't think i was the wunderkind that uh my play and the joke writing had promised i think i was it took me a while to uh what would the word be? Not a, um, 
to, to equalize, I guess, to get my sea legs. Um, I think I was not the personality to walk into a room and just start whipping jokes out really fast, especially at that level. And the show itself was being shot at such a fast clip. We were we did 22 shows in 23 weeks. Wow. It was super <clears throat> intense because of the way the schedule for the actors were uh, was. And um, by the time I kind of figured out what I was doing, the season was over. Right. And I really struggled. I actually struggled to write. It took me about a year to figure out how to write again. It also took me almost two years to get another job. I, that wasn't a, a stand-up job or a joke writing job. Right. Uh, I mean, I've been in rooms, you know, in, in my late 20s, early 30s where I've been too scared to speak. Were you, uh, were you able to open your mouth? I remember being intimidated. I remember trying. I remember a lot of times me and one of the other writers were, were sent out of the room to, do, to write scenes and then come back in. I remember uh, being scared out of my wits a lot. I remember uh, one of the writers on the show came in and announced something called nap time. He said, look, we're going to be under a lot of pressure. We have to do this, like a show a week. So every day from 3 to 3.30, we're doing nap time. <laughs> Phones off. Everyone goes to their office, takes a nap because we got to work late. We, we did a lot of super late nights, and we need right. you fresh. So every day at 3 o'clock after lunch, I'd go back to my office. I'd lie on my couch terrified and i'd hear footsteps and i'd be like they're gonna fire me they're gonna fire me i know it and i'd be like trying to nap and of course i could not nap i just couldn't nap yeah um years later well i got a residual check for like 22 bucks and i called uh one of this uh head writer up and i was like hey man i'm gonna take you out to lunch so i got this residual and we're talking and and he and i both um we're talking about meditation at this lunch this is about 10 years ago and uh I was saying, man, I wish I had meditated during nap time because that would have been the perfect use of that half hour. And he's like, what are you talking about nap time? <laughs> and I'm like, well, remember when they came in and they announced like, hey, we're going to do nap time and 3 to 3.30 every day. And you guys were like napping and I was always trying to nap. And if I'd meditated at the time, that would have been like perfect. And he's like, what are you talking about nap time? I'm like, don't you remember Mark said nap time? We're going to do nap time every day. And he's like, nap time. Oh, he just start, he rolls his eyes and looks at me and he goes, Ed, nobody was napping. We were doing coke. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Are you kidding? It's the 70s, man. 70s Hollywood. It was early 80s, but yes, yeah, <laughs> no difference. And I was, oh my God, no wonder everyone was so energetic. And, right. uh, and I was just like fried. Wow. Uh, were there people on the writing staff that went on to big careers? Um, there were some, yeah. there were some people that came through. It was interesting that a lot of the lifers, um, sort of petered out, but, but a lot of the people that would come in and out of that scene, yeah. um, went on to some really interesting big careers, either in television or, uh, or in film. But, um, you, you had to kind of know when to get out of that, at least for for me, I didn't have the choice because I was kind of forced out because I wasn't really mediocre at it. And had I uh, had I been a little bit better, I might not have actually had the career that I ended up having. Right. Amazingly, interestingly, had I um, had I been just a little bit better, 
I probably would have gotten hired onto another show and I probably would have gotten into a, uh, on a, on a, on a bit of a treadmill, I think, um, that I wouldn't have been able to handle. I don't think right. emotionally or, or, or psychologically at that time, especially a writer's room that can be so toxic. Oh, they can be horrible. A, I, a comedy room. I yeah. Mean, yeah. I went on to another show, um, that I did three years on uh, in the mid '80s, which was Gary Shandling's first show, which is a, an amazing show. I mean, people I, talk about that as a landmark. Oh well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. that was a, a that was a blast, and it was it was not a um, healthy environment necessarily, but it was a safe space and it was fun, safe to play for most of us. Though uh, I was unaware of some of the other stuff like one of the women writers on the show recently wrote a piece about having had this event happen to her on um i read that yeah, yeah. but one of the one of the actors in the show like and she all but named him i mean she yeah. described him perfectly so that you yeah could figure it i out. didn't yeah. know who it was i i called her um i was like janice oh my god like first of all where was i like right. how come and she said to you know you were not there <laughs> obviously but I was like, we, like, we didn't even know. Like, I was like, my God, how horrible must it have been to not even be able to say, I thought I was like, and I was close with Janice. We were friends. I mean, I guess, and we also, um, you know, we, uh, we shared a, a kind of, um, we both felt like outsiders at times on that show, even though I was in it for, th for three years. But um, She was head writer? No, no, she was brought in um, because I think there was a general feeling among the people running the show that the characters were a little one dimensional. They were kind of one dimensional and their women weren't really f well written characters, which mm -hmm. was true. They weren't. And so um, there was an attempt on several occasions to bring in writers who were, you know, both women and who wrote right. character at a, at a deeper level. And... Um, so she was brought in for that reason, and uh, I the the reason I I bring this up is I was unaware, like unaware, and I don't know if it's a product of the fact that I was still in my you know mid twenties, or if I was still so eager to fit in in that like comedy world that I just didn't look at certain things, um, or if it's because I was a dude right. on a in a in a in a in a dude world and therefore ignorant and without what's happened now in the culture yeah i wonder if those rooms would remain as unaware right i think they would be unaware and now i think what's changing which is great is awareness and so i think it's hard to know you can't travel back in time but if i think if i had had the awareness i have now then I might have not been so blind to it. I might have been able to go, hey, did something happen? Right. You know, she got fired not too long after that, and Ugh. I just assumed she was fired for right. creative reasons, to right. be totally honest. Um, and I just, you know, was like, okay, whatever, their sensibilities don't match, I guess. I, you know, I liked her, though. <laughs> she, yeah. She's a super nice person, and the fact that she had had that experience in that environment that I was having this other experience. I was having like, none of us knows what we're doing, but we're just making each other laugh and right. isn't this fun and innocent and ridiculous. Right. And, you know, we had the joy of 
writing a show that almost no one was watching. <laughs> and we could do whatever we wanted to do. It was on Showtime when Showtime was in its infancy, right? It was, it was the first year of our second year of Showtime. And right. it was even on Fox. It was on Showtime and Fox, and Sorry. nobody was watching. It was pretty wow. funny. And it broke all sorts of barriers, right? Bro- he broke the fourth wall constantly and you know spoke to the audience. And yeah, it was, a, it was a really interesting lesson. And um, it's funny because I drew on it a lot and that was 30 years ago. I drew on it a lot when we were doing Mosaic, which is the latest thing that I worked on. Right, your new HBO show. Yeah, because the the HBO show was originally an app. It was, uh, it, or it's it, not originally, it is also an app. There's two different ways to view Mosaic. You can watch it, you can download it on your phone or on your computer or on your Apple TV or whatever and watch a branching narrative version of it where you pick a character's point of view and you follow that character through the story. Or you can watch it on regular HBO, or now it would be on, you know, on demand on HBO because it's aired already. Right. And just have the story told to you. And it's not like we just repurposed one set of sequences and reordered it and put it in the, the HBO version. In fact, Steven did a, a St- the director, Steven Soderbergh, did a uh, rebuild from, you know, from the footage just to, you know, because each story had different organic rules uh, and wanted to be told differently. So, I mean, I'm sorry, each telling of the story, mm-hmm. you know, would require it had different different rules to it. Right. But the reason I bring that up is on Shandling Show, we had this interesting creative opportunity, which is Gary played a guy named Gary, a comedian right. who had his own television show. And this is before everybody, every comedian had their own show where they played someone with their own name. Right, exactly. Yeah. And he played Gary Shandling, who had a TV show out of his living room called It's Gary Shandling Show. And the TV show was the thing that you're watching right now. And it was really interesting because Gary's um, uh, relationship with the audience was a very intimate one. But his relationship with the characters on the show, not so much. And that was part of the problem in terms of I think that's why the show is good but not great is that we never – the characters didn't have the kind of inner life that hmm. they probably needed to be. But the reason I bring it up is because Gary talked to the camera and knew it was a show um, and knew he was on a show, his rules were different than the other characters' rules. Just the internal physics the, the, of the show dictated that. Um, for instance, if Gary wanted to uh, change locations, if it made sense, he could walk down onto the stage floor and cross in front of a set and walk back into the set and the audience could go with him. But another character, if they wanted to go from Gary's house to back to their house, they had to, in dramatic terms, go outside, get in the car. So That's one such of, a cool idea. It was, and what was interesting about it was every show that we constructed that started with the physics of the show, like we had a cool idea for a gimmick, that show would be worse than the shows that if we, if we had a legit character story, you know, that was based in real emotions and real, um, just some, you know, truth, inner truth, those episodes always worked better. And the comedy and the conceptual gags, so to speak, grew organically out of the story and the whole story cohered. But when we had an idea for a, you know, something that messed with the physics, first, the shows fell flat. And, right. and that lesson tr- I took with me a lot when we were putting Mosaic together. Because in Mosaic, we knew 
that we had this idea that the viewer's going to make their way through a scene and at a certain point make a choice. I'm going to follow Aaron or I'm going to follow Ed. And if I follow Aaron, I see a very different point of view of the story than if I follow Ed. Right. Um, we knew that we already had a compliment, uh, complicating element, I guess, in it. And so we kept saying to ourselves, let's always um, make sure that we don't get in love with the gimmick of this. Right. It's a story, 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 character, character, That's character. Correct. Let's make every scene worthy of being in its own. Right. Yeah. I love that. And I mean, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I can't wait to, to finish watching the series because I and, and to watch watch it on the app because I find that so interesting. We talk a lot about, um, you know, the anti-hero at the center of so many of the great shows of, you know, the beginning of this century. And it feels like the trick to get the audience on the side of Tony Soprano or Walter White or any of these characters is to tell the story from their point of view. And so what happens when you flip that? What happens when some viewers watch it from the anti-hero's point of view, but some viewers are watching it from someone else's point of view? Do you feel differently about, you know, that main character? It's a great experiment. I learned so much working on the show. I can't even tell you. I like I'm so grateful that I had this opportunity. I feel like I went to 3 years of grad school with the best teachers in the world, like Soderbergh and the, you know the people that worked on our on our piece, all of them, Casey Silver who was a producer, a graduating class of one, me. Right. <laughs> Very, very boring fraternity parties. And, <laughs> <laughs> but, I, uh, but I feel like I learned so much because yeah. Steve and I would say to each other all the time, how often in your career do you get a chance to flex muscles you would never have flexed? This is more complicated by orders of magnitude than anything I'd ever had to work on. It forced me to have to really think about what you're talking about, mm -hmm. which is... And it was interesting, which is when you when you make the choice to um, sort of what do we call it, just uh, pro empathically project onto another character, um, you you do have a kind of empathy for them mm -hmm. that you wouldn't have had otherwise, right? Because you're you're putting yourself in their shoes. Yeah, and you can follow almost anybody, mm -hmm. and. Just by the nature of, I hate to use this word, but like of dramaturgy, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, just by the nature of, of point of view, you and the use of point of view, you can make any character, if not, quote, sympathetic, at least fascinating. And, and an audience person finds themselves wrapped up in that tale. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think also one of many reasons right now that there's so much more interesting characters on TV you know, because you have a longer time to go with them. Right. And then if you're with them long enough, all these other facets start to come out. Completely. You know? Yeah. It's, and it's interesting hearing you talk about Gary Schindling. You know, he's known to be such a mentor. So many people I know, um, you know, worked with him and, and credit him with oh, yeah. uh, teaching them everything. Judd Apatow in his book actually talks about working on the Larry Sanders show. And it sounds like Gary took similar lessons from the show you worked on with him. It's Gary Schindling's show that uh, I think Judd's line about Larry Sanders is that Gary always used to say, this is a show about people who love each other, but Hollywood keeps getting in the way. 
um, which is so smart. I right. think. Uh, so Gary was was he like a mentor to you? I mean, it sounds like he was a you know uh, instrumental in your first two jobs. Oh my God, Gary! Um, Gary was the first person, first professional to say, if you want to write, you know, you could, you you could be a writer, and um, I met him at UCLA. We were, I was in, I was writing jokes, and then I was also doing stand up. We had a group called the UCLA Comedy Club. Bunch of my still closest friends. Um, we would do um, like seven minutes of each of us, like maybe seven or eight of us would perform like seven minutes, eight minutes each of original material. And we have a professional headliner come in. And so we had, you know, Seinfeld and I mean, you name it. There was like anyone who was kind of coming through the club circuit at that time would come for 50 bucks and be our headliner. We did a show about once a month. And one day, I think it was March of 1980, Gary um, was our headliner. And I did a set. And he said something after my set, like, would you be interested in writing together? But watch my, he said, watch me work, you know, and see if you think you can write for me. And we went out afterwards to a coffee shop and um, he did a couple things. First, he looked through, he, went through my set and he picked it apart and said, okay, so almost every, and I had, a, I had such a good set, I thought. <laughs> and I did a little extra time that I shouldn't have done because I was getting laughs and I was, on, and I should, I should have gotten off stage, but I, I was like being selfish. But he said, um, you had two good jokes. Wow. You know, I mean, I got laughs throughout. So of course I thought I had better jokes, but he, he said, you had two good jokes and let's talk about why, you know, and picked out the two that were, I get that were, good and he said the rest you can get rid of and now and it's funny because gary uses this phrase and soderberg uses this phrase and steven's been a great mentor to me at this last few years the phrase or it's a term is optimize it's like you know so now you take these two jokes look at why those work get rid of everything else now build the set around those two jokes and then when those two jokes are no longer your strongest jokes you know you get rid of them and just keep optimizing and uh and so Gary, first of all, helped me with that, with stand-up, but also we started writing jokes together. And he's just doing this to be a good mentor, to be a good guy? He was that way to everybody, man. Yeah. It was amazing. And he talked about having had an experience when he lived in Tucson where he wanted to write jokes. He wanted to be a writer. He'd written a bunch of jokes. He drove to Phoenix to go see George Carlin perform and went up to him afterwards or went backstage or something, knocked on whatever he did and said, um, I'm interested in writing. Would you take a look at my stuff? And Carlin said, sure. Wow. It's a bold ask. I know. So Gary left him a bunch of stuff, drove back to Tucson, and then the next day drove back to Phoenix to see Carlin. Carlin had all his stuff laid out and said, let me tell you about what works and doesn't work about wow. what you're doing. And Gary brought that up to me in my first time with him. Wow. And I found that really interesting. And I told that story to George Carlin when Carlin was on Bill and Ted. Right. And he's like, yeah, I remember that. And um, But Gary was a, you know, he's a complicated guy, um, very conflicted and, you know, um, and you know, neurotic, obviously, and brilliant, but took great, great 
pleasure in other people's success and in helping them. It was beautiful. It actually makes me a little choked up right now yeah. because he he would he he would literally like if you needed him for that kind of thing he would well assuming you could get him on the phone <laughs> he would run to help you know but he oh, look I mean there's a documentary Judd did a documentary about Gary I had a similar relationship to Gary that Judd did Judd's much more evolved and spent more time with Gary especially in the last part of Gary's life um, I was more involved you know when in the first part of my professional life with Gary. He started um, your career, it sounds like. He did. He, he introduced me to he, to Mark Sotkin, who hired me on Laverne and Shirley. Then he invited me onto his TV show in its inception, and that was awesome. Um, and, you know, he it's funny. He, he struggled with so many things, you know. But one thing that he didn't struggle with was helping everyone that he could help. And he really did. It's amazing. Mm. I love that. Um, did you ever play basketball at his house? Yeah, I used to play regularly. I'm, I'm a pretty crappy basketball player, but I loved playing. I played in those games for probably about a decade on and off. That's I mean, the games those... went for like two decades. Right. Uh, yeah. And so it's just Sunday at Gary's house, and I have friends that have gone, and they're like, they play three and three, and so it's like one team is you know Brad Pitt and Sarah Silverman and Kevin Nealon yeah. against you know whoever, yeah. it's just whoever. Sarah's good, by over. the way. <laughs> is that right? No, she's legitimately good. That. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Huh. Uh, she was one of the few women that played, but she was really good. So awesome, and I guess uh, you know a real testament to what a great community of comedians and actors and writers that he you know yeah. fostered. I mean, there were definitely super celebs there, but most of it was other like working writers and right. comics and stuff. It wasn't you know. There would be famous people in and out, but it wasn't um, predominantly. Right. Um, and then just one thing about the story you were telling before. Did you have to drop out of UCLA to go right for Laverne Shirley? I, I graduated. I remember Mark. I remember at the um, one of the rewrite tables, uh, Mark uh, Sockton, yeah. and producer, saying, uh, Ed's got to leave. He's got a midterm. <laughs> <laughs> you were literally doing both. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, your senior year. How'd your friends feel about you writing on this giant sitcom? It's very interesting. Uh, you know, it's funny. No one's ever asked me that. <laughs> but the truth is, it changed in a good and a bad way. It changed everything. Um, I remember the difference between how I was treated. Because I was hanging out in the theater department. Because, as I said, I couldn't get into the film classes of any kind. So I was hanging out in the theater department. All my friends were in the theater department by this point. Um, and when I went from guy to writing plays, trying to, you know, do what everyone else is trying to do, to suddenly being employed on a show, I remember the difference between how I was treated on Friday versus when the news broke and how I was treated on Monday. And I remember feeling at that moment two things simultaneously. One... Uh, this is weird how much nicer people are being to me. And two, I like this feeling. <laughs> it's easier. I suddenly am being, like, I got a little bit of cred all of a sudden, and it feels good. So be aware of that, Ed, you know. Interesting. There must have been jealousy, though. There must have been people saying, I can write circles around that douchebag. He's Oh, yeah. I'm sure. And by the way, a lot of them could write circles around this douchebag, uh -huh. for sure. I mean, that's the thing. In college in particular, um, the, 
you don't have any sense of where anyone's going to be. You only have a sense of where they are right at this moment. And the people who shoot out fast don't always last. In fact, most of the people that I compared myself to, and usually negatively, like, oh my God, that person is so talented, or look how good they are at this right now at the forum or whatever, didn't have long careers. I got lucky early, like with this break, and then I spent two years struggling, had to borrow money from my parents, and actually thought I'm a flash in the pan. Meaning, and part of it was that awareness of how I would be perceived and that feeling of shame. Because when I, when I didn't get hired back onto, not Laverne and Shirley was over, but when I didn't get hired by the producer on his next show, and he said to me, he said, you were good. You know, you did, you did good. You, you, you wrote stuff that got in. You wrote a few episodes. You weren't great. You weren't like, you know, I think what they were hoping I would be was just this comedy mind that could crack jokes left and right. And I just couldn't. It's not my skill. Um, and I was so fried. Uh, and you were 21 and I was going 21. to college. Yeah, and going to college. Yeah. And it, that was so strange being... Um, in that milieu while also being in my old milieu. It was very odd. But um, like I felt like I was literally a one-hit wonder. And so I was very aware and feeling very ashamed of the fact that, hey, everybody, look at me. <laughs> I'm writing for a TV show to, yeah, I'm trying to you know pitch to shows I'm not getting hired I used to work on Laverne and Shirley I am writing jokes again I'm doing stand-up again I'm scraping and clawing I'm borrowing money from my parents I'm still living in the same apartment I lived in in Westwood thankfully uh, with roommates so it wasn't like I had a high nut my savings from Laverne and Shirley where I had put $13,000 away which was a ton for me um, at that time I mean, you were, I assume you were making good money on Well, Rancho, I was right? paired on paper with a partner, meaning they hired two young writers to come in as part. But trust That's me, it was worth it. Yeah, but it was worth it. Oh, like, of course it's worth it. But yeah. the WJ shouldn't allow that to happen, right? Well, they shouldn't, except honestly, I don't think I added the value of a full writing person, to be honest. And I think for the for the guy that I was paired with, it was a chance for two of us to get a job yeah. on a TV show. Yeah. So I was 100% willing to do it, but I know in my salary, I know what my salary was because our, our Writers Guild minimum was $1,200 per episode, and we split it. Mm-hmm. And I got 600 minus taxes, which put me at 398 mm-hmm. a week or an episode or whatever. And, you know, plus I got about 10 grand or 12 grand to write an episode or two. And so after taxes and whatnot, right. by the end of the year, I had like 13 grand, and that lasted for the whole next year. Right. And then I thought, well, um, this may, I was really scared, but my friends and I um, had been doing, once a week, we had been renting this um, theater space in Hollywood for 20 bucks to just work out and do do improv, but without an audience. We didn't want an audience. We just wanted to push ourselves and try to like grow and all, hmm. and all that. And we, random night, random sketch, Chris said, hey, let's do two guys who know nothing about history studying. And, and he called me Bill. I called him Ted. There was a guy, Bob. There was this character of Rufus who was their 27-year-old friend and Ted's dad. And Chris and I just loved doing the characters. And um, 
just goofed around as them for about a year. And one day we decided to put them into this movie. And so we wrote a, and I was getting to the end of my money. I was getting to the end of, like, I was thinking, what am I going to do? Literally, what am I going to do? Should I get another job? Should I try to go to grad school? We wrote the Bill and Ted script. You're, you decided <laughs> instead to do the very practical thing of writing a buddy a comedy. <laughs> right, writing a spec script about two guys who go into a phone booth and travel through time. <laughs> nice move. Yes. Well, it was a van at the time, but still, yeah. <laughs> And that is the end of part one with Ed Solomon. Ed was so generous with his time and so filled with wisdom about writing and about this crazy profession in general that we've decided to break the convo up into two parts. So hope you will join us next week for part two, the dramatic conclusion. Um, Thank you as always to our amazing producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. You can hit me up with questions or complaints or ideas for future guests at aaron.tracy at yale.edu. See you next week.